in the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't done so already, you could open up your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And I'm going to begin reading. You can find that on page 835 of the Pew Bible, if you're using one of those. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16 of Matthew 28. Hear the word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." This is now our fourth Sunday in a row to make these particular words of Jesus our chief meditation. And I hope that they have nourished you as we continue to serve alongside each other for the spread of the gospel among all peoples. I'll tell you that one way that Jesus' words have nourished my soul is that they have fed it with something far more glorious than myself. You know, as Christians, it's right to do a bit of healthy uh, introspection. You know, where we take the grace that we've been given by God and we look within to evaluate where and how we need to grow in likeness to Christ. We want to look more and more like our Savior, and so we check our attitudes and our motivations and our affections with the Word of God, and that's all good and necessary. But there are times when I can become so fixated on myself and on what's wrong with me that I fail to see the very thing which produces the transformation that I so much want. Namely, I miss the glory of Jesus Christ being prized among all peoples because I'm so focused here on what's wrong with me. I'm trying to find it. And every time I think I've found it, it's like mercury. It's just moving around. And, and these, these words of Jesus have served to lift my head off myself. The world is about Jesus Christ being prized among all peoples in all of his glory. God created the world and he is currently redeeming the world so that his glory revealed in Jesus Christ might be prized and treasured and enjoyed among all the people groups of the world. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I think we know what it means for the waters to cover the sea. God is going to flood the earth with His 
glory. That's why God created the earth and that's where God is taking the earth by saving countless multitudes as they hear of Jesus' glory through the preaching of the gospel. And the last three weeks have been for me God lifting my head off myself to see the authority of the risen Christ, the task of love in proclaiming the gospel to all peoples, and Jesus' emboldening presence with us as we complete the mission. That's what we've seen so far, and that's what's been so edifying for my soul. Christ saved us to behold greatness. And that greatness isn't found in us, in me, but in the once crucified but now risen Lord of the universe who is now gathering all nations to worship Him. And this morning I want to lift our heads even more off ourselves, off our church, off our agendas, off our paltry American dreams by looking at the glory of Christ in the completion of the Great Commission. So I said this is our fourth Sunday in a row. The first week we looked at the authority behind the Great Commission. It's verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. The second week we looked at the nature of the Great Commission. Our task is to make disciples of all people groups of the world. Last week we looked at the courage for the Great Commission. Jesus' promise there is, Behold, I am with you always. He is our courage. And now today I want us to look at the completion of the Great Commission. So that means all we're looking at today is the very last phrase of verse 20, to the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with us to the end of the age. And I want to set before you at least three truths bound up with that phrase and what they each mean for our lives. But before I get there, let me just clarify that when Jesus says to the end of the age, he's talking about his glorious return to judge the nations and establish his kingdom on earth. There is a span of time between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and Jesus' coming from heaven. There is a span of time there. And during this span of time, Jesus Christ is seated in the heavenly places. He is seated at the highest place of authority at the right hand of God in heaven, where he is gradually, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, he is gradually putting all his enemies under his feet. Jesus' cross and resurrection dealt the final blow to Satan, sin, and death, and now it's only a matter of time before he brings an end to all his enemies once and for all. It's like he's, he's the cross and resurrection cut off a dragon's head, and all that's left in this age is the dragon's tail wreaking havoc on earth, and it will come to rest. When Jesus returns. That's the age Jesus is talking about. 
it ends at his return. And I know that's what he's been talking about because back in chapter 13, he, Jesus explains what's tied to the close of the age or the end of the age like we see here. So if you want to do, go back with me to Matthew 13. Jesus is already, and we'll look at verse, uh, we'll start in verse 39. But Jesus has already given a parable of the weeds, growing up along with the wheat. And now he's going to explain the parable of the weeds to the disciples. And in verse 39, he says, The harvest is the close of of the age. Same age he's referring to in Matthew 28. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it will be at the close of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So what's associated with the close of the age? Verse 41 tells us we see the Son of Man sending... His angels assisting in judgment and God's people. There you see the righteous ultimately saved. And we get the same thing in Matthew 24. So go with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, page 829 of the Pew Bible there. And just look first with me where the, uh, the disciples, in verse 3, ask Jesus, right there at the end of verse 3, they ask him about the close of the age. So they're asked, come on, Jesus, tell us about these things. When are they going to take place? And, and what about this close of the age? Now flip over to verse 30. And after talking about a period, the same period I talked to you about a minute ago, between the resurrection and the second coming, this period is characterized by tribulation and distress, and after that, Jesus says this in verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels. Same thing that was going on in 13. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's what Jesus has in mind in Matthew 28 when he says that he's with us to the end of the age. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So if you ask Jesus, and we've been in Matthew 28 four weeks now, if you ask, if you ask Jesus, all right, Jesus, we know why you've given us the Great Commission. 
You have all authority in heaven and on earth. And we know what we're supposed to be doing, making disciples of all nations. And we know how that's even going to happen. Namely, you're going to be with us to the end of the age. Next question. When do we stop? When do we stop, Jesus? And Jesus' answer is basically, you can stop making disciples not when you think you've reached the nations, not when the missiologists tell you you've reached the nations. You can stop not when you're tired of reaching the nations. You can stop not when you've retired from your career position. Not when your own community, you think your own community is reached. No. You can stop making disciples when you see me split the clouds and coming with power and great glory. That is Jesus' answer to their question, when do we stop? Now, you very well may die before then, but the point is this, as long as Jesus has not split the clouds to bring his kingdom from heaven to earth, the task of global missions is not complete. It's not complete. Our sights must be set on Christ and Christ alone and not on the results of our works. We'll know the Great Commission is complete when Jesus returns to earth and we see angels coming with him to gather his elect and to punish those who refuse to submit to him. But until that day, we should, we should, as a church, value and submit ourselves to three truths surrounding the, great, the completion of the Great Commission. So this, I'm taking you now to these three truths. Number one, the completion of the Great Commission is certain. The completion of the Great Commission is certain. That's the first truth. Our work as Christians... In making disciples can never be in vain. Giving our money to support a missionary or buy two ways to live gospel tracts to hand out in white settlement. A couple of weeks ago with Kevin and Dale and Homer and the others. Or giving ourselves, giving ourselves to following Jesus every day in our marriage and in our parenting and in our vocation. And in our recreation, all that's included in our, in our own discipleship is never in vain. Because the completion of the Great Commission is certain. Our work is not in vain. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that means he has the supreme right and the infinite power... ...to finish whatever he's promised he's going to do. And we've seen this already, like in Matthew 16. He says, I will build my church... ...and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He will build his church. 
He has the supreme right to talk like that and the infinite power to ensure the church's growth and her victory over the grave. I will build my church. And then we read it a minute ago in Matthew 24 together on the screen. Jesus promises the, the, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the inhabited earth as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The gospel might bring judgment to some and salvation to others, but the message of the king and his kingdom will reach the ends of the earth. All people groups will hear of King Jesus crucified for sinners and reigning in heaven coming from the lips of people like you. And that promise cannot ever fail. The nations hearing Jesus is as certain as the Christ returning. Or how about John 10, 16? John 10, 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep. He's talking to these Jews. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's referring, now he's going out to the Gentiles. He's talking to these Jews. I've got sheep that are not just in this fold. I have sheep Not of this fold, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. I must bring them. They will listen to my voice. That's a promise from the mouth of Jesus about the Gentiles responding to the gospel. Jesus' words in this great commission and in his promise to complete the great commission carry no less authority than Yahweh when he says in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Jesus' counsel shall stand and Jesus will accomplish all his purposes. So the Great Commission is not a, maybe it will happen, or let's see what these guys make of the thing. The Great Commission stems from the absolutely sovereign, unstoppable power of the Lord Jesus, promising that it will be completed. Now that means a couple of things. It means, first off, that if we choose to sit on the sidelines... Ignoring Jesus' command to make disciples, Jesus doesn't lose, we lose. We lose, we miss out, we will perish. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. If we ignore the authority of Jesus Christ, if we refuse to follow him with our whole being, if we disengage from the mission that he's called us to, if we just coast with the rest of the world while making Jesus nothing but a little helpful add-on to, the, to, the, to our lives, then we will lose when Jesus comes to win. Jesus doesn't need any of us to complete the Great Commission. He's able to finish it 
quite well without us. What should humble us is that Jesus chooses to finish the Great Commission with us. That should be very humbling. He chooses to finish the Great Commission with us. Now, I know that not everyone here are Christians, but for those of us who are Jesus' disciples, not a day should go by that we're not amazed at Jesus rescuing us from wasting our lives on things that are transient, things that are stupid, things that are fleeting, rescuing us from pursuing those things and giving us a life full of all things that are certain. How many of our stories overlap with, with, chase, with us chasing after the fleeting pleasures of this world, all of them luring us straight to hell before Christ saved us and brought us into an unshakable kingdom, a kingdom that is certain in its coming? Christ doesn't need you to complete the Great Commission, but he has chosen you to complete the Great Commission and promised to be with you until that work is done. That's one way the certain, this certainly applies. This, this certainty of the Great Commission applies. We give our lives to the privilege of making disciples of all nations, or we lose. Another way it applies to the disciple of Jesus is that it keeps our love from growing cold in a world that's hostile to the gospel. All right, we read this earlier, but just stay there with me in Matthew 24 and go back again to verse, just to verse 6. This is Jesus explaining to his disciples what characterizes this, this, the present age on earth while he's reigning in heaven, putting all his enemies under the feet. This is what characterizes this age. Matthew, 26, Matthew 24, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's the danger. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So we've got wars and rumors of wars and famines, and earthquakes, and tribulation, and betrayal, and apostasy, and false teachers, and persecution, and lawlessness, and death. What in the world keeps Jesus' disciples going and loving the nations and preaching to them and serving them in the face of that kind 
of world. What keeps you being among those there that say, who endure to the end? How do you stay there? You stay there by laying hold of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and all his promises, which are yes and amen. What keeps you going in the midst of a hostile world and a dark world is a heart enthralled with the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the certainty of his word. None of your sacrificial love, none of your evangelism efforts, none of your Christ-exalting efforts at home or at work, none of your mission support is in vain, even if your head gets cupped off for the gospel's sake. Regardless of how the darkness taunts us, the completion of the Great Commission is certain. And Jesus will give us endurance so that the gospel of the kingdom spreads to all nations. And he comes again with his angels to gather his elect from the four winds. The completion of the Great Commission is certain. Secondly, the completion of the Great Commission is urgent. The completion of the Great Commission is urgent. The reason I say that the completion is urgent is that one of the ways God has shown compassion to a rebellious world is that He has delayed the day of wrath. He has delayed His wrath. He has put off His judgment for a time. That time I told you about a minute ago between the resurrection of Jesus and the second coming. That span of time is mercy on planet earth because God has delayed his wrath and given further opportunity for people to hear the gospel and place their faith in Christ for salvation. If you're not a Christian... I just invite you for a minute to consider something with us for, for a minute. The Bible teaches that everybody knows God. We see that in Romans 1. Everybody knows God, but that we all reject God and are guilty for our rejection and worthy of condemnation. That means to be Worthy of condemnation means that we deserve to suffer under the torment of God's wrath for eternity. Regardless of what you may or may not think about God, the world that the Bible reveals to us, the real world, we would say, is a world in which everybody, even an atheist, knows God. They know God, but they reject Him and are guilty before him. Romans 1.19 teaches, teaches us that everybody knows God because what can be known about God is made very plain to us. As God's creatures, we can look at the things in the world from a subatomic particle and a microscope to the human eye to the farthest visible supernova. We can look at these things and we can perceive, the Bible says, we can perceive God's eternal power and His divine nature simply by looking at them. That's true of everybody. The problem 
is that even though we know God and are able to perceive his worth and his truthfulness and his glory as the creator, we reject him. By nature, we don't say with heaven, worthy are you, O Lord, and our God who created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We don't say that by nature. We instead suppress the truth about God. We refuse to worship God as God or give thanks to Him. And the conclusion the Bible draws is that we're all guilty for this kind of rejection. So guilty that we deserve nothing less than to suffer eternal torment in the presence of the wrath of the Almighty God. Who has every right to condemn us for our rebellion. That's where all of us are apart from God showing us mercy. God had every right to judge us immediately, totally, and eternally. But he didn't. But he didn't. Even though God doesn't overlook our rebellion against him, he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He planned from the beginning to delay his wrath on an evil world. It's still coming, don't get me wrong. His wrath is still coming. Isaiah 13 says that the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put them, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make the heavens tremble. And the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. That day is coming. But God has mercifully delayed that day that we might find escape from his wrath by trusting Jesus. God sent Jesus into the world to die on a cross in a very unique way. He wasn't just suffering the pain of the Roman whips. And the bleeding and the thirst, he was suffering in the place of countless rebels under the wrath of God. So that they would never have to endure it themselves. By dying in your place, he took away the eternal torment you deserved. He provided the forgiveness of your sins. And he won for you reconciliation with God if you would believe in him. Jesus is your way of escape from the coming wrath of God. And he's all yours if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has indeed raised him from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he is now putting his enemies under his feet and he will return again to bring you to himself forever. And there's not a Christian in this room who wouldn't want to talk to you about this morning If that's you, if you want deliverance from the wrath of God to enjoy the glory of God as you were created to do, then confess with your mouth that he is Lord. 
Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And I would encourage you to find a saint this morning. That they might walk with you in what this means and what this implies then for your life. For those of us who are Christians, this is the way of escape that we're supposed to be proclaiming with great urgency to a lost world. Not only because the day of God's wrath is coming, but because the days of sinners are fleeting. We don't live forever. The days of sinners are fleeting. Everybody is dying. If you're one or ninety... Everybody is dying. And if they do hear and if they don't hear about Christ, people will suffer eternal torment under God's wrath. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the, the and God and men, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Nobody will be saved who does not hear and believe in the person of Jesus Christ as he is proclaimed and held before them in the gospel. God didn't delay his wrath so that we dilly-dally around with the mission he's left us. He delayed his wrath to save us that we might then proclaim Christ to others with urgency and vigilance. Jesus is very clear that A delay in his return should not be abused by the church, but used by the church to rescue the perishing. I'll just point you to one place on what should characterize us. If you go to Matthew 24 with me, again, I want to start in verse 45. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been talking about uh, what will be characteristic of this age, and then he describes what it will be like at his coming. And then starting in in verse 45, all the way to the end of chapter 25, you get these uh, parables that Jesus is is telling the people so that that the, the disciples know how to live in this age. And this is the first one he tells, in verse starting in verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is evil, according to this text. We know what wisdom is. Wisdom is bound up with faithfulness to the master throughout the day while he's away. Evil is this. Evil is using the master's delay to do what you want instead of what he's left you 
with to do. Evil is using the master's delay to do what you want instead of what he's given you to do. In this case, as we've seen from Matthew 28, making disciples of all nations. The completion of the Great Commission is urgent because the wrath of God is terrible and the compassion of God is great. Jesus is away for a while, brothers and sisters, and he plans to return. Your own days, your own days may be up by then, but the question is, how are you spending them? How are you spending these days? Is it in faithfulness to what the Master has given you to do? The completion of the Great Commission is urgent because the wrath of God is terrible and the compassion of God is great. He has delayed His wrath and provided a way of escape for sinners through the Christ that we have come to love and the one to whom, and the Christ that we are to proclaim to others that they too might escape the same wrath that we have escaped. The compassion of God has shown us in helping, has been shown to us in helping us to escape wrath. And that compassion can only compel us to show the, compassion, the same compassion to the world by rescuing them from eternal fire and introducing them to the glories of Jesus Christ. Peter O'Brien uh, puts it this way. If we know the desperate plight of men and women under divine judgment, because we ourselves had once been in that predicament, if we know that, and if we know that the gospel is the only hope for deliverance from the wrath to come, then we should be wholly involved in bringing it into the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't die for just you. He didn't die just for just you, but for countless multitudes who will, who will, who will be represented before the throne of God on the last day, but who also must hear the gospel first in order to be reconciled to God before the last day arrives. And we've been given the privilege of declaring the mercies of God in Christ that they might join us on the last day. And that leads me to our last truth about the completion of the Great Commission. The completion is also glorious. The completion is also glorious. It's certain, it is urgent, and it is glorious. We might say that this last truth is even another reason of why the completion would be so urgent. Because we can't wait to see Christ in all of His glory revealed. We really want to see the glory of Jesus Christ being prized among all peoples forever. We don't pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven for nothing. It's because we want his kingdom to come. We want to see him on earth achieving all of his purposes. We actually want to see the glory of Christ 
among all his redeemed people. And soon, we want to be, our lives are to be characteristic of, of what it says in uh, 2 Peter 3, 12. Waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord. Both. We're not just waiting with hands, sitting on our hands. We're hastening the day. We're working hard because we want to see our Savior. Or in Acts 3.19, when Peter's preaching to the Jews, repent so that God may send the Christ. Get with it, people. So that he might send the Christ. We want him to come back soon that we might see his glory. Consider this with me for a moment. This is part of, this is the, the completion is glorious. We are making disciples of all peoples because a countless host of redeemed peoples will be represented before the throne of God. We see them in Revelation 5.9. Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're talking about the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For by your blood you did ransom for God people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. We see them again in Revelation 7. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then finally we see them at the end of the book of Revelation. In chapter 21, verse 3, in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, When a voice comes from the throne of God and says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. The ESV has it translated, they will be his people. It's it's plural. They will be his peoples, and God himself will will be with them as their God. The completion of the Great Commission is glorious because the kingdom of God will not be characterized by racism or ethnic pride or economic division or social chaos or age preferences or affinity favorites. There will be one choir of redeemed saints as diverse as tribes, tongues, peoples, and languages can be with all their different backgrounds and all the different ways that God saved every one of them, all with their unique stories, but united through the blood of the Lamb as they tell each other for eternity of the glory of God shining forth on Christ and reflecting off the saints. And not only will this diverse choir of redeemed saints be united with God and one another, but there will never be any tension between them. No awkward care group moment. Should I pray now? Should I wait? No awkwardness. 
no fear, no envy of one another, no strife. Man, I wish I was closer to the throne than he is. None of that going on. Or anything that would cause their division. Because no sinful impulses of the heart will be present in any of them forever. Every day with each other will be love, kindness, peace, joy, gentleness, and celebration. Because no sins in us will be hiding God's glory or hindering the enjoyment of God's glory as it's reflected in His saints. Remember what we read earlier in Matthew 13, 43. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You know what, you know what that means? Think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light, what? Let your light so shine before men so that people see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. For the righteous to shine like the sun means that their lives are so characterized by the the good works and everything else that they're doing that it's just perfectly reflecting the glory of God so that everybody looking at each other and all the redeemed saints in the kingdom of God can't help but just constantly be giving glory to God for everything that they're doing. Nothing will be hindering that from happening perfectly forever in this community. All of the works of this multitude of people will shine with the brightness of their Father's glory with the Lamb who sits on the throne. And if that's not glorious enough, our enjoyment of God's glory shining from His saints can only forever increase because for God to be God is for, him to be, to, is for Him to never be fully comprehended by finite creatures that He's made. There's God who is infinite and there's everybody else who's finite. So all our days together will only be filled with further thoughts about and new discoveries of and greater growing more affections for God's glory in Christ without distractions from Satan or self. The completion of the Great Commission is glorious because the glory of Jesus Christ will be finally and fully and completely prized in His redeemed people. Now, if that's what the Great Commission is ultimately about, the glory of Jesus Christ being prized and treasured among a blood-bought multi-ethnic, glory-reflecting community, then why would we do anything less than pursue that now? In this age. It won't ever characterize us perfectly in this age, but we should pursue it with all our might by making disciples of all nations and of one another. We should never let the current state of any person hinder us from working to bring the gospel into their lives. Whether that's geographical distance, a particular ethnicity, an uncomfortable culture, a language barrier, a social status, an economic situation, an, an age, a mental development or handicap, 
particular sin struggles, whatever, our Lord designed his gospel to transform all peoples. All peoples without distinction and what should motivate us to bring it into the others, into the lives of others, is the vision of what God can and will make them to be should they embrace the gospel we take them. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is that the vision of God, of what God can and will make people that we get from his return, from, from who the redeemed community will finally be in the age to come, That vision of what God can and will make people should motivate us to preach the gospel to all people. Some of us don't believe that even for each other. Much less for the nations. We cannot, in this church, we cannot underestimate the power of the gospel to transform sinners. The good news of Jesus' return is that in an instant, Christ has the power to make all his redeemed people into what they should be for his glory and our eternal gladness. Therefore, let's labor to preach it often to one another and to the world. Moreover, let's have the vision of the kingdom even shape our regular gatherings with each other so that Christ in all his glory unites us and not any one particular worship style or cultural preferences or age group or social classes or ethnic preferences. Our gatherings should make the world scratch their heads because what unites us here is what will ultimately unite us for eternity, namely the glory of Christ being treasured in his people. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Let's help each other's affections for Him grow. Let's preach Him to each other and to the world. Let's make disciples for Christ among all peoples. For the completion of the Great Commission is certain, it is urgent, and it is glorious. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would do a good work in our body and that you would give us grace to walk with one another in the gospel and for the faith of the gospel and its spread among all peoples. We do pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom and until then give us faithfulness by the strength that you supply as you are with us even to the end of the age. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.